Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for people who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Robin Morse from the University of Virginia. And I'm the co-host, Ahmed Lamazmi from Princeton University. Today, I'm here to talk to Professor Hayaki Suzuki, the author of Slave Trade Profiteers in the Western Indian Ocean. Suppression and Resistance in the 19th Century, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2017. Dr. Suzuki is an associate professor at the National Museum of Ethnology in Osaka, Japan. By discussing this book, we will explore how slave traders interacted with and resisted the British suppression campaign in the 19th century Western Indian Ocean. By focusing on the transporters, buyers, sellers, and users of slaves in the region, This book traces the many links between slave trafficking and other types of trade. Drawing upon first-person slave accounts, travel logs, and archival sources, it documents the impact of abolition on Zanzibar politics, Indian merchants, East African coastal urban societies, and the entirety of maritime trade in the region. Ultimately, this groundbreaking work uncovers how Western Indian Ocean societies experience the slave trade suppression campaign as a political intervention, with important implications for Indian Ocean history and the history of the slave trade. Welcome, Hideaki, to the new books in in the Indian Ocean world, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your book. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to this wonderful opportunity. I'm looking forward to talk with you today. Thanks. So we're going to start off. Can you start us off by saying a couple words about yourself, that is, where you grew up, where you went to school, and how you became interested in your field of study, and perhaps any influential mentors you had? Oh, yeah, sure. I was born in Tokyo, then I grew up in several places. When I was eight years old, our family moved to Moscow. I mean, my father was sent to Moscow, and we followed him. I mean, he was sent by a company. Then in 1988, we once went back to Japan and stayed for a few months, then moved again to Seoul, South Korea. The same reason my father's company sent him. I don't know the reason why my father's company sent him so frequently, maybe because he was a good worker or maybe not. Anyway, I stayed altogether five and a half years outside Japan. And this experience eventually pushed me to go to the field, I mean the history of the Indian Ocean world. Uh, Let me tell you what I mean. In these five and a half years, I went to Japanese school and in Moscow because at the time it was still Soviet Union. Although perestroika was going on, we lived in an apartment where only foreigners lived, of course, including many Japanese families. And in Seoul as well, we lived in the area where many Japanese families lived. And this circumstance I didn't necessarily touch local people, local culture, and local society. 
I mean, I didn't know almost anything about Russia or South Korea. Of course, I touched these sometimes, partly because I was some sort of adventurous kid. I still remember when I rode subway by myself in Moscow alone, and a, a kind gentleman sitting next to me asked me where I go. I answered in in Russian, like a blah blah station I want to go. I cannot speak Russian now. I forgot. I forgot almost anything except some small greeting words and, and some songs. But uh, that time I was so so nice Russian speaker, so I could communicate in Russian then. Anyway. Uh, he got off before I get off. Then that gentleman asked an old woman sitting next to me, the other side. I mean, he asked her to teach me when the tube reached the station, which I should get off. This is one of many good memories in these days. But I realized when I was a high school student, I mean, after coming back to Japan, although I have these nice memories, I didn't know anything about these people, culture, society. And at the time, 1980s and 80s and 90s, still there, there were few foreigners in Japan. There were, of course, but quite few. So I did have a great opportunity to get into other world, which were not common for many of my friends in Japan, but I didn't take that chance. This kind of feeling, it's not a regret, it's not miss. I uh, I don't know proper English word. Um, maybe in Japanese I don't know the proper word to express this feeling. But this kind of feeling remains in my mind. Then when I entered the university, I chose a history department because I loved so much my grandparents and then I loved to listen to their old stories. So history was very close to me even at the time. And for me at the time, History seems to be the subject in which I can access what I couldn't get in my childhood. I mean, understanding of people, culture, society, which physically so far from where I am. And my undergraduate was Gakshuin University. Professors in the history department are very nice. And my first mentor there was Professor Norihiko Fukui. He's a specialist of modern French history, and then also he introduced Michel Foucault and the Annal School to Japanese readers. And then in the freshman seminar, we read his book in town. That book features recent trend of historical studies, uh, such like agenda or something like that. And by accident, my chapter was Maritime Network. And I can tell you, actually, I wanted to be in charge another chapter. But immediately after my starting preparation, I noticed this topic is fascinating because this is a history of encounter, encounter of different people, different culture, different society. I mean, I noticed this is a topic which I was looking for. And then also this is a history of adventure, which reminded me of my wanderlust in a childhood in Moscow or Seoul, like a traveling alone to my friend's house or I don't know if you know uh, Dragon Quest, a role-playing video game which I played when I was a kid. I, I'm not so big fan of these games, but most of Japanese kids in the late 80s played these role-playing video game to shake their wanderlust. I, I was one of them. So I fixed my focus on the Indian Ocean world history from the very early stage, uh, not 
by uh, introduction of some professor, but uh, from my experience in the childhood. But at the same time, I was focusing on medieval times of the Indian Ocean world history, not the 19th century, which I'm studying now, largely because of the influence of the work, works done by Professor Hikoichi Yajima. I didn't, I didn't meet him in person, just reading his works at that time. He's a kind of Japanese brodel on the Indian Ocean world history. He has advocated the Indian Ocean world since the late 1960s. And then he's a medievalist using mainly Arabic sources. So for me, at that time, Indian Ocean world history was something medieval. But anyway, that's all the beginning of my study on the uh, Indian Ocean world history. Thank you. And so you've earned your PhD from Tokyo University, writing about the modern Indian Ocean slave trade. In that regard, would you describe the status of the Indian Ocean world history as a field in Japanese academia? And where do you see some of its current and future directions? Yeah, thank you so much. That's a great question. Uh, probably firstly, I'd like to introduce what, I, what is called kaiikishi which is very important for Japanese historians working on the uh, Indian Ocean world history, then go into Indian Ocean world history per se. That's comfortable to me. Uh, in Japan, we have a kaiikishi studies. Kaiikishi is a Japanese term, and kaiiki is literally maritime region, and shi is history. So history of maritime region, that's the meaning of uh, kaiikishi. So we have an Indian Ocean Kaikishi, East Asian Kaikishi, Asian Kaikishi, also Atlantic Kaikishi, for example. But largely, Kaikishi studies have been developed in the field of East Asian waters and the Indian Ocean. And then Kaikishi is not the same as maritime history in Anglophone academia. Kaikishi has been established fundamentally to challenge conventional narratives of history, such as land-centered history, also nation-based history, and it keeps this original aim till now. So some Japanese kaikishi scholars translate their work into English using maritime history or blah, 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 but I don't think it's a good translation. Uh, anyway, I mean, this sort of split of kaikishi met global history, uh, the concern of the global history in the mid 2000 in Japan. Uh, in Japan, researchers work individually, but they often make a joint project with other researchers, which are usually or often supported by funding from uh, Japan Society for Promoting Science. And there were several kaikishi-related projects since then, but the largest impact was brought by what is called the Ninpo Project. The Ninpo is the name of port town in China, and that project tried to locate the formation of Japanese traditional culture into East Asian maritime sphere. This was a actually very big project involving not only historian per se, specialists on the literature, religion, etc. But one of the teams in that project, they tried to write about the progress of East Asian kaikishi, and many early career researchers, like a PhD students, joined it. I also joined partly, and this project opened the entrance of Kaikishi studies widely to the younger scholars. And then these younger scholars oh, are kind of like a, a core of Kaikishi studies today. 
And then currently, Kaikishi seems to have established a certain position in Japanese academia. And then Kaiki framework itself seems to attract not only historians now, but also all scholars in the neighboring fields, such as area studies. I've heard that several new area studies projects will be set up centering the oceanic space, including the Indian Ocean, in the next couple of years. So if it's really set up, the Indian Ocean World Studies in Japan goes to next stage. I mean, not only historian, but involving other neighboring field scholars. And then as for the Indian Ocean World uh, history, if we follow Michael Pearson's way, I mean to set the eastern end of the Indian Ocean World at Malacca Strait, we have some dozens of scholars currently working on. And before 2000, most of the people worked on the medieval times and then early modern, uh, partly because of the influence of Professor Yajima's work as uh, I introduced. But last 20 years, the number of people began to work, a number of people began to work on the late 18th to the 19th century and even 20th century. And I'm one of them. And then recently, uh, we start to have uh, some kind of like a joint project. Actually, one of them I joined, which was led by uh, Professor Kaoru Sugihara. Probably some of you might know. He's, uh, he's quite famous for his intra-Asian trading uh, network. And he tried to analyze uh, Indian Ocean world from an economic history perspective. So as such like that, I mean, I mean, now the joint project of the Indian Ocean world uh, started and probably it's going to be increased, increased in the near future. Uh, future direction, let me talk about not only Indian Ocean, but Kaikishi as a whole. Probably we can find a commonality with the Indian Ocean world history. The big advantage of Kaikishi is to highlight connectedness which easily cross borders set by conventional perspective of history such as border between land and sea, border of nations, etc. So more and more we talk about Kaikishi, we can more and more relativize existing borders. But simultaneously in this process we are creating border around Kaiki itself. This is what I call dilemma of Kaikishi studies. So more and more we talk about Indian Ocean world, for example, then existing border of Indian history, Persian Gulf history, Swahili history would reduce its significance and then merge together. But at the same time, I'm wondering whether we create border of Indian Ocean world per se. So how could we get over this dilemma would be a crucial question to any people working on Kaikishi, including Indian Ocean world history. So current trend in Japan connecting Kaikishi with global history might be a solution. But fundamentally, how we can build the concept of Kaiki or world, world of Indian Ocean world, including dynamics of both opening or aperta and closing or unity. And this challenge is not only the issue for Kaikishi and an Indian Ocean world historians, but more general issue to any historians, I think. That's fascinating. So now we're going to turn 
to the book and its chapters. The book consists consists of eight chapters and an introduction and conclusion. So can you tell us a little bit about how the book idea developed? What was the research process like and your writing experience? And because this is a podcast concerned with the Indian Ocean world, can you discuss your second investigative question a little more in depth here and why you felt it was important to frame your book this way? Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Okay. So uh, as I told you, I mean, at the beginning, I focus on the medieval times. And um, until my master's thesis, actually, I worked on the medieval Western Indian Ocean, focusing on East African coast. So my BA thesis was about oceanic migration history to the East African coast, using combining typology of mosques and the ruins and um, typology of oral traditions, like a Shiraji tradition. Uh, then my master's thesis in turn used medieval Arab geographical works such as Idrisi or Abrifida, uh, not exactly geographer, but Al-Masudi, etc., to trace the transition of image of East African coast or Bilad Zanj in this literature. So I'm not the uh, 19th century guy from the beginning, rather latecomer. And then when I started my PhD project, I left medieval stuff behind. Actually, then actually my first proposal on a PhD project was to compose some critical editions of Shiraji traditions. Because several PhD students in the University of Tokyo at the time work on this sort of project and then look solid. Then I brought my proposal to Professor Masashi Haneda. He became my PhD mentor, but we knew each other since my undergraduate, and I joined his seminar uh, during my master, although he was professor at the University of Tokyo while I was not a student there. And he gave me always useful advice to push me forward. And he gave me any many chances, for example, to read my paper at his workshop where I can get to know many wonderful scholars in in and outside Japan, so I owe quite a lot to him. Anyway, uh, when I when when I brought my proposal and then he saw my proposal, he asked me a question: "Do you really want to do this?" <laughs> to be honest, uh, no, uh, because I mean, yeah, actually, uh, to compose critical edition of Shiraji tradition, that's quite important work, but uh, this is not work for me, but probably work for more solid uh, person. And he asked me what I really want to do. I answered, I like not to focus on some part of the Indian Ocean world, a particular region, but I like to argue the movement of the whole Indian Ocean world. And then also I like to use my field experience into my work. And he said, you can write your proposal so and do it. And so I do it. So at the beginning of my research, I read again existing literatures on the Indian Ocean world history. It was some 15 years ago or a bit more. So the number of the works was not so much. Starting with August Toussaint's work, Kirti Chaudhuri, Andre Wink, and many other works, including collection of conference paper up to Michael Pearson's Indian Ocean, and then Eric Gilbert's Doubt Trade, which were just came out at the time. 
I've already read many of them, but mainly the sections around the medieval times. So this time, I carefully read how did this literature draw the picture after the early modern times. That's my question. Then I found out that most of them, almost except Pearson and Gilbert, didn't say almost anything on the 19th century. They argue that the, uh, uh, the Indian Ocean world as a historical unit didn't work any longer or it was collapsed after European influence dominated economically as well as politically uh, since the mid-18th century. Sooner or later, I noticed that this understanding corresponds with views provided by uh, Emmanuel Wallerstein or André Gunther Frank or Ferran Blodel. Uh, they also argue that the historical unit of the Indian Ocean was incorporated in the European origin world economy. Of course, I cannot deny the fact that many places of many re- regions of the Indian Ocean were colonized by European powers and economical exploitation is also not deniable. But the question came up to my mind at the time was, although colonization and ex- economic ex- exploitation have taken place, does it mean the collapse of the historical unity of the Indian Ocean world? For example, many of these authors regard doubts as a symbol of the Indian Ocean world. So after colonization or incorporation into world economy, did these doubts stop sailing? No. Eric Gilbert's work on uh, colonial Zanzibar illustrated how the doubt trade gradually moved toward the periphery, but still exists. If you visit Zanzibar, uh, there is modern harbour. If you travel from Dar es Salaam with ferry, you arrive at the, that harbour and there you can find one or two container, gigantic container ship and then hundreds of containers on their uh, harbours. And then many visitors turn right to go to the stone town. But if you turn left and then go straight, then you reach Dao Harbour. It's a huge difference, huge gap of circumstance. Modern harbour with concrete, you can walk smoothly, while Dao Harbour is in very poor condition, especially to be compared with modern one. So if you want to ride the Dao, you need to jump on mud and sand beach with leaked oil and dead fishes. Of course, it's very smelly. Indeed, this shows vividly peripheral character of doubts today, but firstly, doubts are still there, and secondly, you can find out so lively atmosphere. Mangrove poles from the mainland are unloaded by workers one by one, men and women are surrounding fishermen who just keep coming back with their fresh fishes. Of course, these doubts nowadays do not travel to the Persian Gulf, for example, but still doubts are there and people rely on doubt transport at a certain degree, which are not ignorable. And if you go to the main market in a stone town and ask, ask shopkeepers where these items come from, for example, rice, you can find out different kinds of rice from several regions of India or Pakistan. What is interesting is you can find the similarity of this lineup today to the list of goods sold in the market in Zanzibar, written by uh, Richard Burton, recorded in the mid-1850s. I mean, you can find out some Indian Ocean-wide connection still there, and then it's uh, that is quite similar to what 
Richard Barton observed almost like 150 years ago. And this kind of field experience made me doubt about existing theory about a, a collapse of the Indian Ocean world. And then this argument to conclude with the collapse of the Indian Ocean world by European influence or Western influence, I call it corruption theory. This is not misspelling of collapse and corrupt, but implication of corruption theory. Corruption is that these arguments dismiss resilience or strength of this historical unity of the Indian Ocean world. And they are easily, I mean, these authors are easily washed off by East-West or Orient versus Occident dichotomy. So easily identifying European expansion with collapse of the Indian Ocean world is corrupted by the way of thinking to divide the world between Europe and the others, modern and pre-modern, civilized and uncivilized. Sugata Bose and Ned Bartz pointed out similarly. So since very early stage of my PhD project, I am keen to this issue. Then the question is how to tackle this corruption theory. Then I set focus on the 19th century because it seems that this is a crucial period when the world economy expanded and colonial, colonialism as well. At a glance, 19th century seems to be a century of crisis and of the Indian Ocean world. So at this at initial stage, I decided to explore what's happened in the Indian Ocean world in that century of crisis. Then again, the question is what subject I focused on. It took a big time. First, I tried to look for sources which reveal local merchants' affairs. I found a I found only a few records, not enough for the project. At that time, uh, Professor Yuzo Shitomi, he's one of the few specialists on early South Arabian history and made a brilliant translation and detailed notes on Maris Ezrae. And um, he's another mentor of mine during my PhD. He kindly chose a book of uh, BK's uh, East African slave trade for his seminar. And he sometimes told me that slave trade would be an interesting topic, so you had to do. But I didn't incline so much immediately. I thought slave trade is something special business at the Atlantic. And then looking at the slave trade, it's not easy to catch the picture of the 19th century Indian Ocean world. Then, but then I had an opportunity to visit India. I joined the project of architectural historians on a Kutch and a Gujarat. So I left Japan some two weeks or three weeks earlier than others and then stayed in Mumbai to visit Maharashtra State Archives. Then I explored some of the documents and then finally found that actually slave trade was not a special business. Rather than that, it was a business many people involved from king or sultan to baker, grain merchant, etc., etc., and even slaves. So I, I ascertained I can find out some clue to tackle corruption theories to uh, exploring slave trade. I was lucky to get research funds from JSPS. Then I could visit several archives after the uh, Mahalashtra archives. Then gradually I recognized the importance of multi-archival approach. For example, for example, there was some incident in Zanzibar between French people and a Sultan, for example. It is natural there is a difference between description of that incident by French consul and that by British consul. But what is interesting is that there is also a difference between documents in the National Archives in a queue, 
in the UK, and the Maharashtra State Archives. I mean, within British Empire, the contents of reports are different even though the same person reported the same incident. It's because British consul uh, at Zanzibar reported to Bombay government what Bombay government was interested in, and then the same British uh, consul reported to London what foreign office was interested in. So the subject like slave traders who didn't leave their own writings. Such multi-archival approach is necessary to collect small tiny pieces and put together to look at the slave traders in various angles. It is indeed endless process, but it's fun. I was lucky to have funds, that's why I could do, but uh, recently like a Qatar Digital Library or Galica in the Bibliothèque Nationale, day by day more and more digital sources come to be available. So at least this approach come to be much easier than before. Yes, indeed. The uh, Qatar Digital Library has been very helpful in this time where we cannot travel. So to return to your first question of your book, can you give our listeners a sense of the land and seascape that you mentioned in your second chapter oh, that you um, that you mentioned and the texture of the Western Indian Ocean slave trade? In the 19th century. And then can you expand a little bit further on why you chose slave traders as your focus rather than the enslaved themselves as is typical? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so uh, the 19th century is the peak period of the slave trade in the Western Indian Ocean. Usually we divide the Western Indian Ocean slave trade into two parts. One is southern trade and the other is northern trade. The southern trade means slave trade across the Mozambique Channel and then towards the Mascalene Islands, Mauritius and La Réunion. For example, Mauritius shifted towards sugar monoculture economy when Britain settled their rule after the Napoleonic War, so labor force was re- required. And the Madagascar Marina Kingdom settled their rule over the Madagascar Island, and this process produced many slaves for sale. And as you might know, Mozambique is the third largest export region towards the New World in the 19th century. So this southern trade connected also with the Atlantic slave trading network. Uh, because of British suppression campaign of the West Africa, traders found they were relatively easy to sail from Mozambique to place like, places like Brazil. Uh, that's the reason behind of the uh, increase of the uh, Mozambique in the uh, Atlantic trade. And in this place process, slave ground for, the Mo- in, for Mozambique export eroded toward the further interior after depopulation of just hinterlands. So in the Mozambique island, there were more Yao slaves than Makua slaves. The region where Yao came from is further interior than where the Makua lived. But my book mainly concerns with the, uh, the other trade, northern trade. In the northern trade, 19th century was a century of African export. Previously, we have variety of origins of slaves uh, circulated in the Western Indian Ocean, uh, in the northern part. Uh, some from Georgia, others from India. Of course, there were many slaves from Africa. But in the 19th century, like a Turkmenchai treaty concluded between Russian Empire and Qajar Iran, slave import from Central Asia became difficult. 
Since then, those who were in Gajar, Iran, demanded more African slaves than before. And the other side of the Persian Gulf, Arabian side, the 19th century, especially after the General Peace Treaty and a maritime truce, the demand of slaves increased. In the second half of the 19th century, dates and pearls became global commodities, which required more labor force than before, which were fulfilled with their slaves. But the largest demand of the slaves in the 19th century northern trade was in the East African coast. East African coast had been functioned a major antipode for the slave trade already, but triggered by introduction of crop plantation along the coast required a slave labor force. In the 19th century, in the mid-19th century, nearly half of slaves arrived at Zanzibar remained, uh, remained there. Uh, by the way, in the Western Indian Ocean, in general, we didn't have a slave ships as we imagine. I mean, slave, uh, ships with full of slaves and then only slaves. The exception is a coastal trade between mainland of Africa and Zanzibar, but it's a short distance, at most two or three days voyage. But long distance such as from Zanzibar to Muscat, usually a few slaves on board. And... I mean, I you can find out the uh, the graph uh, uh, in my book, uh, and this is a reason. This is one of the reasons why I chose the slave traders as a subject. The question is what they carried, apart from slaves. I came across not plentiful, but several shipping lists uh, confiscated by naval patrol from ships with, with slaves, as I put in my uh, book also. These, I mean, these items, apart from slaves on board, are grains, mangrove poles. I mean, these items. It is these items that have created Indian Notion World. And my understanding of the Indian Notion World is that fundamental element to create Indian Notion World is flow of goods from the place where some goods are abundant to the place where such goods were not abundant. Mangrove pole, for example, you can find out the roof of most of old architecture in the Persian Gulf. They are from East African coast historically. Uh, we have mangrove swamp in the Persian Gulf, but most of them are uh, Avicenna uh, Marina. Avicenna Marina, that is a type of mangrove. I mean, that mangrove. Abyssinia Marina is very strong against high, uh, high salinity, high salinity concentration of seawater there. Therefore, almost only Abyssinia Marina you can find in the Persian Gulf. But they are very thin, and my informants told me in the Persian Gulf they couldn't use local mangrove because they are weak. These mangrove poles are weak. So, for example, like even Haukal, uh, the medieval Arab geographer mentioned East African woods were used in buildings in a Siraf. Siraf was the uh, once a uh, major port in the Indian Ocean world located on the Iranian side, which was destroyed by the earthquake in the 10th century. Uh, but the, that wood used in the Siraf from uh, East African coast, that should have been a mangrove. So going back to the main story, slave trade didn't exist alone, but along with other trade which historically have created Indian Ocean world, 
This is the reason why I chose slave traders in order to grasp dynamic change of the Indian notion, a Western Indian notion in the 19th century. Thank you for elaborating on that further. So from all accounts, the 19th century was a period of change and transformation for these Indian Ocean slave traders. In your book, you focus on the decades between 1822 as the start of British attempts of suppression in the Indian Ocean and 1873, when the Sultan of Zanzibar signed, signed a treaty to end the slave trade formally, changing the power relations in East Africa, even as the slave trade lasted in the 20th century. However, in your analysis of the analysis of these changing dynamics with the British, you examined practical and legal attempts to end the slave trade, as well as structural change post-1860. What were these changes? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so periodization between 1822 and 73 is a classical one, but it's still important periodization from legal perspective of suppression. I mean, in these decades, legal foundation to illegalize slave trade had been established. But crucial period was by the end of the 50s. Uh, without this foundation, the British couldn't intervene slave trade. And yes, indeed, slave trade continued up to the 20th century. And uh, my last chapter deal with this issue while focusing on Act de la Francisation, which I like to talk later. But anyway, uh, in my book, actually, I didn't so much put emphasis on the importance of the period between 1822 and, 30, uh, and then 1873. Yes, it's important, but as I told you, uh, mainly in a legal sense. Instead of it, in order to capture structural change of the Western Indian notion associated with the slave trade and its suppression, I believe the turning of the 1860s is an important period. Firstly, because of participation of the Royal Navy in 1860, which was the subject of the chapter 4 of my book, and then secondly, separation of Busaidi into Oman and East Africa also took place in the late 50s. And the East African Busaidi changed their attitude towards slave trade. I mean, they came to more British side, and this change and shifting towards plantation economy in Zanzibar made Zanzibar a new slave ground, and this brought quite unstable condition to Zanzibar, which also happened in that at around the turn of the 60s. And then also British consul forced the Indian residents along the East African coast to emancipate their holding slaves. That also took in the 60s, and their nationality issue developed in this, in this decade. So all these changes were concentrated, concentrated around the turn of the 1860s. So uh, in the chapter 3, uh, I deal with the progress of how legal foundation was established. That's the first aim. And then secondly, I like to examine the strategies how traders, especially transporters, face to this establishment. Basically, transporters used anything in order to continue their trade. Transporters used their sailing skill, geographical knowledge, etc. Actually, their DAO was so fast, they could sail in good condition with 11 knots. 11 nautical knots, that's so fast. And then patrolling ship uh, often missed these DAOs. And then also they discovered, they discovered new sailing routes, I mean these transporters. And as for geographical knowledge, Lam Archipelago is very interesting. Uh, 
Lamu is northern end of Kenya today. If you go with a speedboat, one and a half hours you are in Somalia. So Lamu was, and then Lamu was, Lamu archipelago was surrounded by uh, uh, almost like a mangrove swamp, which make uh, natural labyrinths. It's very complicated channels. And then some channels during low tide, you cannot sail. I still remember in 1999, my first time to Lamu, I was on the local jahazi, local ships, and we were stuck in the middle of the channel due to low tide and waited until high tide came. It took several hours. Uh, we were under the sun. So local sailors know this kind of things and they can pass smoothly in channels. But the Royal, uh, but the British Navy, Royal Navy couldn't. Oh, for some reason, my captain in the 99 didn't as well. But only these skills and the knowledge, but not only these skills and the knowledge, but also they were watching very carefully the progress of anti-slave trade treaties. So when many Arabian chefs in the Persian Gulf prohibited slave trade to their subject in the late 40s, they used Gajari ships because at the time, Gajari didn't conclude anti-slave treaty with Britain. So Gajari ships could transport slaves without any interference by British patrol. So transporters could use even treaty network, which gradually choke in their necks, but they don't care. They could use, then they use in order to continue their, 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 their trade or their transport. And with this resistance, Indian Navy couldn't succeed their campaign against slave trade. Yes. Um... Uh, in, you, in your fourth and fifth and, f- and sixth chapters, you uh, elaborate and unpack on what you've started in the previous ones by tracing, reconsidering the Royal Navy's anti-slave trade campaign from the slave trader perspective to chains of reselling, reconsidering slave dealings based on slave owned voices. And in the sixth chapter, the transformation of the East African coastal urban society in the slave distribution system. So... For these chapters, uh, I would like to ask about the available sources for accessing the voices of the enslaved individuals. And what are some of the challenges that you've encountered in writing these chapters? Uh, And in chapter four, um, so after a number of years without success, the British Royal Navy begins to participate in slave trade suppression in the Western Indian Ocean and commit to ending slavery as as we learn about in this chapter. What change regarding British involvement and experiences of the slave profiteers? Uh, and perhaps you could remark on why East Africa was their focus in comparison with the Atlantic world. Well, yeah, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, as for the, uh, uh, the... So may I start with a chapter five or may I start with chapter four? Yes, uh, as, you, as, you, as you like. Uh, okay, so uh, yeah, uh, l- yeah. So I I will start with the uh, chapter f- four. Or oh, you are asking, uh, what kind of change could happen regarding uh, British involvement and an experience by the slave transporters, mm-hmm. and then also why uh, East Africa was their focus. I mean, their 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 Royal Navy's focus. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so before involving of the British Royal Navy, the Indian Navy took in charge of suppression. Actually, Royal Navy was there 
but they were so busy for other missions. And then Indian Navy was under the control of Bombay government, and they were so, I mean, the Bombay government was so much anxious about effect of suppression campaign to other commercial activities by the Indian merchants. So they were, the, the, the uh, uh, Indian Navy were not so eager to suppress the slave trade. Uh, I have to add this aspect to the background of insufficient campaign by uh, Indian Navy, which I mentioned in the previous answer for their owner. And another reason of unsuccessful operation of the Indian Navy was their bounty system. You can get bounty, but you need to prove uh, with captured DAO. So can you imagine to bring the captured ship to Bombay uh, in order to examination whenever you captured, while many other ships with the slaves were coming? Otherwise, you continue cruising with captured DAO to seek for another. But this is the Indian Navy required. Then the examination sometimes took two years, and then during that period, the captain who captured the ship needed to feed crews of captured ships. If I were captain of the Indian Navy, uh, I, I let these ships go. And then actually, uh, some of the uh, Indian Navy captain did. But the Royal Navy was different. They had their successful experience in the Atlantic, and the bounty system was different from the Indian Navy's. They can get bounty not by the number of slaves on board the captured ships, but the size of ships. And they were allowed to destroy the captured ships if they, if they regarded that ships was not feasible to, carry, to be carried to the port where the examination was taking place. And then often they destroyed ships harboring without clues. Uh, for the Royal Navy, these were, uh, I mean, these operations were coming from their successful experience of the Atlantic. And then actually, uh, the reason why uh, they, they, they destroyed these ships, I mean, is because, I mean, these ships has a large cooking pan or large water tanks. That's why they recognized this is the slave ships, and they destroyed. And this might be true for the uh, Atlantic, but in the Western Indian Ocean, people moved here to there so frequently, march and travel from India to East Africa, East Africa to the Persian Gulf. They, I mean, the Royal Navy ignored such mobility of people in the Western Indian Ocean, which was normal there in the history, and applied their experience to experience in the Atlantic to the Western Indian Ocean. So for the Royal Navy, uh, any local ships can be a slave ships, and they focus on the East African coast as if waterfront operation. Anyway, of course, local transporters got angry with the Royal Navy's way, and actually not a few cases, Nahoda or ship owners claimed to naval court that their ships was destroyed without any fact that they carried slaves, and then finally the court in some case, admitted that this, I mean, their claim was true and then compensation money was paid. This didn't make the local transporters and the merchants got angry, but also this, this didn't only made local transporter and the merchant got angry, but also European and American merchants got angry about uh, this loyal Navy's operation. An American merchant noted that the Royal Navy's activities are raising devil with the trading dows. That's a sensational sentence, but true. But the devil 
is not the Royal Navy itself. Rather than that, the devil came up when the Royal Navy applied their successful method and then cognition of slave trade, which were uh, uh, emerged in their Atlantic experience and then applied to the Western Indian Ocean. Here I found uh, the cognition which spreading globally that slave trade was regarded as something universal. And this is a factor to create abolition of slavery and a slave trade as a global experience. So in other words, successful operation of the Royal Navy in the Western Indian Ocean cannot be understood without looking at their experience cannot understand without looking at their experience, the Royal Navy's experience in the Atlantic. And then, yeah, so I mean, sorry, and then about the, uh, the their focus, the Royal Navy's focus on the East African coast, uh, just briefly, their focus on the East African coast rather than the anti-Western Indian notion is a kind of selection and a concentration. I mean, Often we can find we 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 tend to understand the significant gap of the outcome by the Royal Navy and the Indian Navy is because difference of the strengths, but that's not true. Indeed, actually, the Indian Navy was always struggling with small force old ships, but the situation was not so different in the Royal Navy. They also didn't have a large force with latest equipment. They had to operate with old ships and not enough people. So they needed to focus on some particular fo- uh, spot, not the entire Western Indian Ocean. Then they set their focus on the East African coast. As some number of the mentioned, in order to save as many lives as possible, they need to capture ships just after departure. And that makes sense. But that made patrol complicated because until 1873, coastal trade was legal along the East African coast. So it was difficult for naval officers to distinguish legal slave transporters and illegal slave transporters. And of course, transporters took advantage from this mixture of legal and illegal transport in the East African waters. Uh, and then also the... Uh, the the other question about uh, 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 ch- the chapter five. Um, in that chapter, I deal with the uh, uh, narratives of the slaves, and then try to find some pattern of the slave dealing in the nineteenth uh, uh, century Western Indian Ocean, and what kind of available sources for the uh, to 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 catch these voices of enslaved individuals, and then what kind of uh, difficulty I came across during my uh, writing. That that's that. These are the questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I regard slave trade consists of three parts mainly. One is slave trader. The second is slave themselves, and the third is those who try to suppress, especially in the context in the nineteenth century Western Indian notion. The slave trade viewed by uh, traders, slaves, suppressing navy would be different from each other, of course. So ideally, we can understand slave trade only when all these three experiences are entangled. But this is ideal. So easy to mention, but difficult to do. Anyway, uh, this is one of the uh, reasons why I focus on the slave narratives in that chapter. 
And the other reason is that I like to describe slave trade more vividly, lively. And I assume voices of enslaved individuals are the best source to represent the reality of slave trade. We don't have thousands of these personal narratives, and these are scattered in one file and another. So I collected one by one whenever I came across. At first, it was just for my reference. I didn't have any intention to write chapter with these narratives because I thought the number would be not enough. Then after collecting several of them, I read through again, and I found out they have a, a commonalities. That's a chain of resetting. Buyer of slaves tended to sell not long after buying, rather than, rather than that, uh, the time between buying and selling was short. And in some narratives, the price in each transaction was mentioned. So you can calculate profitability of transactions. And it was a good business. Here we can find out some commodification of slaves. But this is totally different from traditional usage of slaves in the Western Indian notion. In many societies in the Western Indian notion, slaves were at first for the domestic use. Slaves represented master's richness or dignity. And the slaves as immature human beings were the subject to be educated into the matured. So the masters of slaves, in a sense, took some sort of social responsibility to educate that slaves, these slaves. And in the 19th century, place uh, like Zanzibar became plantation society and the slaves were used as a workforce at the plantation. That's a new usage of slaves. But here, we can find out the third usage of slaves as a commodity, the object of selling and buying. This is contrary to the traditional concept of slaves in the Western Indian Ocean world, uh, who represented master's social status and richness. And remember, social responsibility to educate slaves. So in some sources, not slave narratives, but they mention that to sell out slaves is a shameful behavior because it proves that seller could not maintain slaves' life and then could not provide enough education. But at the same time, commodification might make sense for these buyers in the situation in the 19th century Western Indian notion. The net to illegalize slave dealings became tighter and tighter. So people needed to take risks to be confiscated the slaves whom they newly bought. So they want to leave slaves as soon as possible, but they need to get profit. If you could get, if you could sell, sell out that slave, you can get profit and then reduce the risk of confiscation. This emergence of new usage of slaves can be understood in the perspective which include the harsh contest between slave trade in, in, and its suppression. So when we deal with personal narratives, the question always arises is the reliability of the contents. But in this case, these narratives kept in the British consular staff are highly reliable, especially on the part of transactions, because that's British officers wanted to know. They couldn't touch slave dealing within the territory of Shaifs or Sultan, but many Shaifs and Sultans agreed importation of slaves was illegal. So British officers traced the chain of transaction, and if they could reach importation, from outside the territory, they could claim the 
rational of their involvement. Because of this, I mean these, I mean these slave narratives kept by a British uh, consular staffs were keen to note any information relating to the transaction, which is liable. That's why I used. Thank you. So as you previously mentioned, the British were increasingly involved in the slave trade suppression as the 19th century progressed. But what were some of the implications for other communities uh, for these British interventionist policies regarding this, perhaps the sovereignty of the Zanzibari Sultan, the Indian community's national affiliations, and the Dow trade in the last uh, centuries, or the last decades of the 19th century? Yeah. Well, uh, Yeah, uh, I mean, I mean, so like a chapter seven or eight or nine, I, uh, in these chapters, I extended my scope to other people who profit from a slave trade. Overall, these chapters shows how slave trade and its suppression was tightly entangled with many other issues. Not only many other communities, but also many other issues. Through these processes, what is important is gradually Western Indian notion became under the control of British Empire. Zanzibari sultans like uh, Sultan Majd and then Sultan Swaini, they were not like Said Said, I mean their father. They couldn't exist as a sultans largely. They could exist as a sultans largely because of support by British Empire. Therefore, they were inclined into anti-slave trade policies, as I mentioned. Uh, and then it triggered instability of Zanzibar society, though. And as to the Indian community, Rigby, the British consul at the Zanzibar, emancipated slave owned by the Indian residents along the East African coast in 1860. I mean, that this was the uh, first example that the British Empire uh, emancipated a large number of slaves in not in their own territory. But uh, this was totally kind of overrunning because uh, these Indian residents, many are from Kachi, and actually they were not actually British subjects, but uh, Rao's subjects. Rao is kind of, uh, Rao is the king of their catch, so uh, king's subject. So Rigby didn't have any right to emancipate their their slaves. But this incident triggered to reveal dual, dual protection of the Indian merchants. They got advantage as being British subjects sometimes. For example, if they had trouble, they rushed into British consul for help, while they took advantage as being Sultan subject in order in other occasions, as they traded in a mainland coast, which British subjects were prohibited. This dual protection was controlled after this 1860s rugby manumission, connected with ownership of the slaves. And about the French flag issue, as I told you, the Royal Navy's operation was as if any ships can be a slave ships, in their view, in their, in their eyes. So to escape from their patrol was not only the issue for those who actually transport slaves, but also for any doubts. Their resistance included using 
the uh, sailing skill and the geographical knowledge, as I told you before, but the most effective method in since the uh, 60s is to hoist uh, tricolored French flag. Usually these dows in the mid-19th century kept several flags on board and they hoist uh, the most profitable one according to the occasion. But what is interesting in the French, French flag issue here is that they hoisted French flag after proper registration. The most of the ships sailed down to Nusi Bay, and um, that is a small island of the uh, Madagascar and Mayotte. Both are uh, uh, French protectorate to register their ships as a French ship. And some, I mean, some of the ships even came from Djibouti. The reason why French flag they wanted is because French government didn't allow British Navy to investigate their own ships. Actually, French government was not the only government who can protect their own ships from a British patrol. For example, Ottoman Empire could do, but there were two problems of uh, two problems of Ottoman flag. One is their flag usually one is that their flag usually in a red color, and that is similar to uh, the flags of the Persian Gulf Shaifdam. And the British naval officers often made mistake. And then secondly, in the case if Ottoman ships were captured by mistake, even by mistake, the captains and the crew couldn't expect quick rescue by the Ottoman government. They had to go to Basra or the Red Sea. Instead of this, French government had a consulate around the Western Indian Ocean. So always their response was quick. That's why many local DAOs got French registration and hoisted French flag to protect themselves from a British patrol. And the last stage of my chapter on uh, this topic is in uh, Den Haag, the Netherlands. This is a very symbolic, this is very symbolic. I mean, not only the French flag issue, but also uh, a Sultan's issue in a Zanzibar and then also uh, Indian resident nationality problem. I mean, uh, let me tell you, uh well uh of course british navy regarded french flag as a big obstacle and then finally finally uh, british government got an opportunity in the early 20th century french consulate in the muscat provide french registration to local omani daos and the british government claimed that this violated national sovereignty of the uh, Omani Sultan. And then eventually this case was taken into the permanent court of arbitration in 1904. Then eventually British government won the case. But what I like to remark is the scenery of the courtroom. The mediator was Austrian doctor of law appointed by Vittorio Emanuele III the Italian emperor and the British side intermediary. In intermediary was the chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, while the French side was a Dutch doctor of law, and it was Den Haag. Even today, like uh, from Dubai to Amsterdam, takes like uh, seven or eight hours. 
to verify, and also there was no captains of Dauds, no Sultan of Shaifs, no one of the Western Indian notion in that courtroom. And in this situation, the use of French flag, which had protected these Dauds from British patrol, was ended. I mean, these Western Indian notion locals couldn't touch this decision in any way. This is symbolic. I mean, slave traders, not only transported, but also, I mean, these Indian merchants and even Zanzibar sultans, they took advantage from a slave trade. In my sense, they were all slave trade, slave trade profiters. But in the process which they got profit from slave trade, they got help from newly introduced system, mainly by Britain. For example, they used loophole of treaties, nationality of ships, matter of subjectship. They used fully these tools in order to continue their trade, not only slaves, as I told. But anyway, more and more they relied on these tools, more and more they couldn't leave from these tools. And their struggle with these tools didn't break these tools, rather than that, and strengthened these tools. And then eventually, we can reach the scenery of the courtroom in a Den Haag where no Western Indian notion locals were there. Uh, by the way, the slave trade profiters doesn't mean, as I told you, only those who get profit economically, but also politically and in any kind. If so, we have to add another profiter on the list. That was British Empire. Because through their suppression campaign, they eventually controlled Indian merchants whom, who are very influential in many places in the Western Indian Ocean. But eventually, I mean, these Indian merchants now, they fixed at their own subjects. That's why they were under the control of British Empire. And then also British Empire controlled maritime communication with the nationality of ships. Was now, uh, which was now regulated. But let me tell one last thing. Uh, sure. But I mean, this doesn't mean the collapse of the Western Indian Ocean world. The Western Indian Ocean world is a world where exchange laid in its foundation. So even economically, they were dominated. Still, ex- exchange continues, and even politically dominate, dominated which I put more focus on in my book, they continue to exchange. Here we can find out resilience of the Western Indian Ocean world. And these control items, such as subject ship or nationality of ships, continue to exist till today. And then still it keeps enormous influence. And these are the products of the struggle between slave trade, trade and then separation, which my book argues. Since you began to discuss your conclusions, let's think about your conclusions a little more broadly. So who do you think, who do you hope will read this book and what sort of impact would you like it to have? Yeah, so uh, I'm so happy, I'm so happy if anyone is interested in the book. Well, but especially I hope those who are interested in broader story of the Indian Ocean world per se, and then also those who are interested in a slave trade, not only the Indian Ocean world, but I hope 
some people working on the uh, Atlantic slave trade are interested interested in my book, and um, more particularly those who connect the issue of slave trade to other issues, and then locate it to much wider context. And then, I mean, if I can, if my book have an impact, probably. I, I mean, this book connected slave trade. I mean, this book tried to connect the issue or the struggle between slave trade and um, uh, slave trade suppression to much wider context and um, many uh, other issues such as the uh, nationality of the ships or subject ship. So if I can... I mean, if I can, if my book connect, uh, uh, contribute to connect slave trade to the to much wider context of the Indian Ocean world history or global history, that is the great pleasure to me. Well, thank you. Well, Hideaki, we've taken up a lot of your time. To end, can you give our listeners a sense of what you're working on now or what do you hope to work on in the future? Well, thank you so much to listen until the uh, last, uh, although my English is a little bit difficult for many of you. But uh, yeah, let me tell you my uh, uh, current and the future project. Uh, when I have nothing to do, I always think about my future project. Some actually, uh, actually many are very uh, uh, proposterous one, but some are nice and sexy. And actually, now I'm doing proofreading of my first Japanese books about uh, my first Japanese book about abolition of slavery and a slave trade in a global history. And then currently, I have three projects. One is about Bombay Africans. I mean, rescued slaves who were sent to missionary station at Bombay, more precisely, Nashik, uh, some 200 kilometers away from Mumbai, and educated there, and many returned to Africa as a part of mission or accompanying with a living song. I visited Nashik this February, and then I tried to develop uh, this project into a book project to find out uh the how movement of the people or create the uh, consciousness of africa or africanness or african through the bombay africans uh that is one of the project and the second is this is something for exhibition but the global history of made in japan i worked on i'm working on japanese kanga Kanga is East African women's clothes, and then from the 1920s up to the 70s, Japanese Kanga almost occupied the market. This is not the history of Africa-Japan relations, because many hands touch the flow of Kanga, like Indian merchants in Kobe, British and Dutch merchants in Southeast Africa, British, British company like Smith and Mackenzie in East Africa. They connected between manufacturers in Japan and consumers in East Africa. I try to include all of these uh, people 
in a picture and then try to describe history. And then combining it, I mean, this case study with other made in Japan products, such like matches or like a tiles, I like to show entangled history in the early 20th century through material culture. That is the second one. And the last one is about bonded population in the early 20th century Persian Gulf. I wanted to write some sort of ethnography of these people. The early 20th century Persian Gulf is an exception in a global experience of abolition. I mean, slavery was legal still in many places and many were employed in a pearl industry. Uh, early 20th century pearling was good business, but gradually World War, the Great Depression, and the invention of the culture of pearl, uh, the pearly, uh, so so the, that business declined. And so far, I collected information on more than 2,000 bonded individuals, including uh, self-statements. Not only divers, but also many others. Not only male, but also female. I want to dive into their world through their own statement and want to understand how they lived in the first half of the 20th century. And then I try to write ethnography of them. That is the, uh, the third project. Well, it sounds like you're keeping yourself busy. I look forward to reading them. Thank you for listening today's, to today's episode with Dr. Hideaki Suzuki, in which we explored slave trade profiteers in the Western Indian Ocean, suppression and resistance in the 19th century, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2017. This is your host, Robin Morse. And I'm Ahmed Al-Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World. Mm-hmm.